here. So I just wanted to read uh, briefly Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. And uh, even though I'm up there a lot, I don't really like the spotlight on me. So (laughs) Uh, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. (laughs) Amen. Good morning. Hello, my name is James. It's uh, wonderful to be with you guys here this morning. Thanks for coming. If you're watching us online, thanks for being here. If it's your first time to be here, welcome. We are so grateful you could join us this morning. We happen to be right now in a series on Ephesians. We've been in for a little while, and it's a series we're calling Living and Loving Like Jesus in the Midst of a Post-Christian World. And today we'll be heading uh, back into chapter 14, or sorry, chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And as the passage was read out, there's one particular phrase in that passage that often stands out to people, and that's this phrase called speaking the truth in love. It's something that's spoken of a lot in, in Christian circles. And, and, and what does it mean to speak the truth in love? There, you know, there's some great messages out there that are titled that, that people give, and a lot of different opinions on speaking the truth in love. And, and I'm sure we can all share a story from our own lives of a time where maybe someone spoke directly to us and spoke a word of rebuke or something that was, that was truth that we needed to hear, even if it was hard and, and lacking all forms of love. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, I shared a story of when I was living in China as a missionary there and how a random Chinese woman in a market just happened to come up to me and spoke a harsh word to me, rebuked me completely, no love whatsoever, but that word really changed my life at that time. And there are many things like that. In fact, a number of years ago, when I was just getting started out in missions, I was in uh, the bush bush of southern Sudan, uh, back when Joseph Kony was there with the Lord's Resistance Army, where in order to go anywhere, we had to travel with trucks of soldiers with us because there was just death and destruction all around out in the bush. And I was an arrogant 25-year-old and didn't think I needed to listen to the rules or listen to my leader, especially because she was a number of years younger than me. And I'll never forget one of the words she gave me as we were traveling because I kept not wanting to listen and do my own thing. And I told her one time in a conversations, I'm like, I look forward to when I get to lead missionaries too. And she just looked at me and she said, James, you cannot be a leader. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And he said, leading is not a title that someone gives you. It's not something you begin to do when you have the title, but it's who you are. And you are disobedient and arrogant and reckless. This is not for you. Um, and uh, praise God, she was right and also wrong in some ways. That, that as the way I was, I couldn't, right? It was a wonderful word that had no love in it in that sense, but it was a great word and it was a harsh word that I needed to hear. And as Christians, we need to grow in our ability to admonish one another. We need to grow in our ability to speak truths, even if they're difficult or hard to hear. And, and the reality is, I, I think I can give a pretty good sermon on, on speaking harsh words that we need to hear to one another, and even encouraging words of rebuke. And, and one day, maybe I'll preach a message on that. But the thing is, that's actually not at all what this passage is talking about. Speaking the truth in love has actually nothing to do with that. And that's what I want to talk about today, what this passage is actually about. Many Christians use this verse of chapter 4, verse 15, it's kind of like a life verse, that saying, you know, I'm a truth teller, I'm, I'm prophetic, and I, I speak the truth in love. I'm not interested in your feelings, I'm just, just interested in telling the truth, and your feelings are irrelevant to it. And, or maybe they say, you know, i got to hate the sin and, and love the sinner, i just got to speak truth, and, and they'll use Ephesians 4.15 to back it up. However, again, the problem is, that's not at all what Ephesians 4 is talking about. 
It actually has nothing to do with speaking harsh, corrective words when sin is present. It has nothing, not that no one should ever do that, that's just don't quote this verse if you ever do. Well, it's because it has nothing to do with that idea. And it absolutely does not have anything to say about hating the sin and loving the sinner. That's just this weird concept that some people have somehow adopted in the church, that somehow we're supposed to do that, when the Scripture or Jesus never ever says anything even remotely close to that. Could you imagine Jesus saying, hate the sin, love the sinner? Did he, did he hate Zacchaeus the tax collector or hate the sin of the tax collecting? Did he hate, was he hating the thief on the cross and their sin when he was there? Was, was he hating the sin of Judas as he was betraying him? No, he was loving the person. You cannot hate someone's sin without them experiencing that hatred. And, and we are never called to be able to do that. They can see and smell it coming a mile away. It's impossible to genuinely love somebody when you're preoccupied with hating their sin. That's not what this passage is talking about. And so today we want to look at verse 14 to 16 to look at what is he actually saying here. And so first, a little bit of context. The first few chapters of Ephesians that we've been looking at the last few months are Paul detailing who Christ is and and who God is and what he has done for us and now what our identity is now that we are in Christ. That he has adopted us. He has saved us. We are now seated with him. Our inheritance is now in Christ. We are part of his body that together with all the Jews and Gentiles, we are now one body in Christ. And now as we get here to chapter four, Paul begins calling the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling. He's going to tell them to walk in gentleness and kindness and humility and meekness and gentleness and and, and long suffering. They must bear with one another in love. And his call is for them to walk in unity together. That It's central to their calling to actually walk in unity together as a body. And, and this is what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. And loving one another and walking in unity is not some step below doctrine. It's not something that we do just to carry it out. But as we see that it's impossible to actually have good theology or good doctrine that is not rooted in loving one another and rooted in unity is what Paul's been saying in this letter, what we've been talking about. Doctrine does not lead to unity in loving one another. It's, it's, it's not, a, a, sorry, a doctrine that does not lead to unity in loving one another is not the gospel. It's, it's not truth. It's a man-centered gospel. And so then just a few weeks ago, we had a, a time where we had a few different people come up and speak from our community and share on Sunday, on New Year's Day. Looking at Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, looking at how we are called as the body to build one another up. And now each of us is a body that we are the clergy as the body of Christ, and, and we are called to build one another up. And I, I want to look at that passage again before we jump into today's, because it leads right into it. It starts in verse 11, and it says this, their responsibility, now this is referring to the pastors and leaders of the church, it says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church and the body of Christ. That's what we were talking about before. He says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Now notice the goal here, the purpose here. The whole body keeps building one another up, doing the ministry of Christ until what happens? What does it say? Until we come to such a unity that we measure up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That's the goal. That's the purpose. That We keep building one another up. We keep pursuing Christ together and one another until we become like Christ. That's what it says. Now, that won't fully happen this side of eternity, but that's the target. That's the aim. That's that's the bullseye that we together become like Christ. Now, imagine I went to a culture before. We went to a country and we went to a place that's never even heard of the word basketball before and never seen a basketball before. 
And as we go there, we find a bunch of young people and we, we say, hey, let's play a game of basketball. And we hand them this ball and we say, go play. What's going to happen? Most likely, considering soccer is known all over the world or football as it's known everywhere else, they're going to probably drop it on the ground and they're going to be just kicking it around, right? Because that's what you do with the ball. Maybe they'll grab it. Maybe they'll start tossing it back and forth. But it's going to be completely chaos because no one actually knows what this is about or what it's supposed to look like. So it's going to look really random. But then what happens if I then bring out a basketball hoop? And I say, actually, the goal of this is as a, together, as a team together, we work together to get this ball to go in that hoop. And so the purpose is, as a team, as many times as we can, we want this ball to be going through that hoop. Now, that changes the game quite a bit. Now they begin to have some kind of understanding of what this game is about. There's a target. There's a purpose. There's a, a reason for what this is about. It's not just random. Because without that, it's going to be completely chaotic. Everyone's just going to kind of do their own thing and have their own idea of what this game is supposed to be like. But honestly, for so much of the church today, I don't mean that north view, I mean broadly as the church, it's kind of like we don't have a target. Or we have a bunch of random ones. Each person kind of has their own idea of why we exist, and each church kind of has their own form of what that is. For some people, maybe the target is to sin less, to, to try and just live their life with as little sin as possible. For others, maybe it's to try and earn their salvation, to do enough good works that God feels better about them. For some, the target is just simply to get to heaven, to somehow be able to have their good outweigh their bad in some weird way that they can reach heaven when they die. For others, maybe it's they want to grow a giant church, be part of a huge community, while still others, maybe it's to feed the poor or to just really love everyone and be kind to everyone. Maybe that's the goal for others. For others, maybe to know all the right answers, to have the best sealed doctrine that's just locked down of what is right and what is true, or maybe it's to be prosperous or to live a blessed life or be comfortable and, and to have all the dreams that we desire, whatever it may be. Some of those things may be good, but none of those are the goal of Scripture for the body of Christ. But Paul here, and in many other places, he states what that purpose is, that together as a body, we become more like Jesus. That's the stated goal of the body. The goal of a body is actually to live and love like Jesus. That's what the hoop is. That's the target. That's the result. That's the part we're aiming. Together, we actually become more and more like Jesus in how we live and how we love. To practically, to actually, to, to realistically, to genuinely be living and loving more like Jesus. That's the target that Paul gives us. Not just as individuals, but together as a body. That as a church, we are actually to do that, to become more like Him. Paul puts it this way in Galatians, amidst a church that's struggling. He shares this way with him in chapter 4, verse 19 of Galatians. He says, Oh, my dear children, I feel as I'm going through labor pains for you again, and these pains will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. He says, I, I'm not going to rest until I can see that you've become much more like Jesus. The goal is for them to develop into Christ-likeness. Not just sinful for perfection, not just to have perfect doctrine, but to live like Christ lived and to love like Christ loved. To do what he did. For people to encounter Jesus when they encounter us as his body. That's the goal of the church. And again, the emphasis on this whole chapter is of building up the body, not on the individual but upon the unity of the body, the body ministering together, the body ministering to one another, the body walking in unity together, the body living worthy of the calling to which they are called, the body walking in love and patience and gentleness and humility, and summary, the body becoming increasingly like 
Jesus. This is the purpose. This is the target. This is the hoop. And that brings us to verse 14, where Paul says this. He says, Then, when we receive this, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of doctrine or new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. So Paul is saying we need to be equipped. We need to be built up so that we're not immature children and blown around and easily deceived by half-truths. Now, I don't know what's wrong with the Ephesians that they were so easily deceived. We learned that obviously we aren't the first gullible generation of the church, right? It's not unique to us in the 21st century. But in fact, every generation has been prone to be enticed by ideas and false teachings and, and half-truths that sound good but are actually empty. But it sounds like this could have just been written to us today. We as a body must move towards maturity, he says. To not be children, to not be easily deceived. Paul is saying it is in fact dangerous to remain immature. Obviously, we all start there, but we cannot remain there, he is saying. But there are so many Christians who have been Christians for decades that according to this definition are still very immature, still so easily deceived, still so easily buy into half-truths and whatever sounds good in the moment. And Paul is saying that is a dangerous place to be. And what's fascinating, what Paul is saying is in this passage, he's not saying that it's the pastor's job to teach and correct all this stuff. As we saw before, he said the pastor, the teachers, their job is to equip the body to build one another up. So it's fascinating. It's not saying it's upon one person or a few group of people to teach truth and to make sure the body is mature in what is true. He, in fact, says it's actually upon the body. The body is supposed to be building up the body. The author of Hebrews says it this way when he's talking to the early church. The author of Hebrews says this. He says in verse chapter 5, verse 12, You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. You should be teaching one another. Instead, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic things about God's Word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot, cannot eat solid food. That could have been written directly to the Ephesians or to the wider church of Seattle, where so many are in that place of just still needing milk because we've not been rooted in who Christ is and and what he's done, and we're not at a place where we feel competent or feel equipped to, to teach others, to actually build one another up, and to train others. And so oftentimes, so much happens in the church, it's all based upon a pyramid of, with one or two people at the top teaching everything, and we forget that's not the way it was intended in Scripture. We are all the clergy, we are the royal priesthood intended to build up the body and to teach one another. We're going to see a central part of what Paul is saying here is that the Ephesians are in danger of giving into false teaching and, and being tricked by clever ideas that sound like truth. And remember that, that the Ephesian church was a very young church. We've talked about this a lot, but for those that are just stepping in now, this is a very young church. And remember that the Gentiles were coming out of a culture of deep witchcraft and idolatry and sexual immorality. And so for them, that was just central to their practices. And so there was incredible, you could say, immaturity in that. And then the Jews are coming out of incredible legalism of trying to force their ceremonial laws on others and trying to earn their way towards God. So Paul is telling the church to help one another. They must grow and mature and grow in unity. They must become more like Jesus and build up one another, walking in gentleness and humility and patience. And then that brings us to verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, instead of that, Instead of giving into all the false teaching and being blown around and deceived, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Notice what that's saying. 
So instead of being prone to being tricked and deceived, Paul says we're to speak the truth in love. But what is the fruit of speaking the truth of love that Paul describes here? Why should we be doing this? He says, so that we would grow in every way to become more like Jesus as the head of the body. Have we heard Paul talking about becoming more like Jesus before? Literally two verses ago, about 10 verses ago, a different chapter ago. I mean, that's the entirety of this thing. We're supposed to become more like Jesus. We will be mature in the Lord, or we will mature in the Lord when we become more like Christ. And he says that we will grow in every way to be more and more like Jesus. We will actually become more like Jesus. And notice again, it's not just us as individuals. But as a body, together, we will become more like Jesus. The body of Christ must actually be becoming more like Jesus in how they live and how they love. Now, maybe you've heard me say this a few times before. We are called to actually live and love like Jesus. That's the target. That's the hoop. That's the goal, the job of the church, together, as a body, actually being transformed in the image of Christ in how we live and how we love and how we care for the community and how we care for one another. It encompasses all of truth. It encompasses all of life. This is who we are to actually become. It's not just some random ideal. It's what he's actually called us to. And so in verse 15, what does he say? How do they grow in every way to be more like Christ in this case? He says they must speak the truth in love. And when I started, I, I said, you know, there's a lot of messages out there on speaking the truth in love, this phrase, speaking the truth in love. And for me, it wasn't until I actually finished Bible school and the first time teaching through Ephesians that I realized, as I said last week, that Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride was actually correct, and this phrase does not mean what we think it means. It's so oftenly misunderstood. Oftenly? Is that what I just said? Um, you know, I've always heard this phrase taught, and I, I say phrase because I've only ever heard it taught as a phrase. Never is an entire verse, and definitely not in the context. It's just this phrase, speak the truth of love, which seems to be understood. And it's always taught without context. And usually, basically, it means confront the sin of people in love or in a gentle way. That's pretty much universally how I've understood it to be. That one must speak truth with boldness, and as long as you speak the truth, it's loving. Just try and be kind when you do it, and don't be intentionally mean is kind of the idea. In fact, I was at a pastor's luncheon just this week, a couple days ago, sitting right in this room, one of these chairs right here, where there was a pastor at a table we were discussing, this pastor was talking about some of the struggles of dealing with some uh, sexual gender identity stuff in one of the churches that they were dealing with, and, and he was saying that, that he goes, you know, some churches are truth churches, and, and other churches are love or grace churches, and he says, we have to find the balance in the middle between love and truth. I was listening to another sermon this week by, as I was, often when I prep, I just listen to some of the sermons on the topic, and, and someone said, you know, in a church we need truth people that will always emphasize truth, and we need love people that will always emphasize love because we need to find the balance in the middle of those two. Oftentimes we'll hear people criticize those who maybe push unity too much or love too much, saying, no, we must balance it with truth. But I don't know if you can figure out from what you've seen so far in this text, it's kind of messed up to try, and se to try and separate those. Because in this passage, it talks nothing about a balance between truth and love. To say that we can be too truthful or, or too loving, I mean, can you imagine telling Jesus that? You know, you know, Jesus, can you back off that loving others stuff a little bit, like tone it down a little bit, because it's a little too much for us, Jesus. Or, Jesus, that's a little too much truth. Can you, like, kind of cut it back a bit of that truth stuff and just kind of maybe some half-truths or maybe a little less truthful because it's getting a little too much for us right now? We couldn't imagine doing such a thing. Now, there's obviously a great place for a conversation about how to love others when confronting sin. Absolutely, there's a great message there. But that's not what this passage is talking about. 
There's nothing in this passage about confronting sin. There's nothing in this passage about a balance between truth and love. In fact, nowhere in Scripture, anywhere, do you find it talking about balancing truth and love. And it definitely doesn't say that there are, kind of, there are, there are love people and, and truth people or grace people, and we need both kinds of people in the church. Nowhere does Scripture say that. I would just ask the question, which one was Jesus? Was he a love person or was he a, a, truth, or, 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 a truth or a grace person some way? Maybe you've read John 1.17 before where he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which one was he? Fully both. He didn't need to balance the two. Paul isn't saying that truth and love are good values and you, you pick a path like it's a personality test like you're doing the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or something else like that, and you can say, well, I'm just an eight, so I'm really on the truth side and struggle to love others. And someone will say, well, I'm a two, and that means, well, I, I just love everyone, and I struggle sometimes maybe to speak truth that could offend. You don't get to pick one in this passage. This is Paul calling, saying this is the calling of all believers. And so what does he actually say then in verse 15? He says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. Now, most English translations say that, speaking the truth in love. The problem is that's not what the Greek says. The word speaking isn't found there in the Greek. In fact, it's just added. If you look at any kind of dictionary, you'll see it's completely missing. That word isn't there. Instead, what speaking is inferred by some of the context. But what's actually said, it's translated that way, because what's actually said is a bit harder to understand or harder to translate. Because the best way to translate that passage is actually to say we should be truthing in love. The word truth is actively used there. So the context refers to using words, yes, but it's clearly more than just speaking words. It's incarnating truth into our lives, that we grow and more and more to be like Christ, that words alone will never make anyone become like Christ. Truth must be lived out. It must be incarnated. So Paul says truthing in love. That's far more than just speaking words. Speaking the truth and demonstrating or incarnating that truth is what Paul is referring to here. And so what truth then is he referring to? Is he talking about your truth or my truth or truth that we can look up online about the efficacy of vaccines or something else? We all have different versions of truth. Is, is that what he's referring to? The answer is no. He's very clear what kind of truth he's referring to, and it's the truth of the gospel. It's specifically rooted in who Christ is and what he has done. He just said it's one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one father, right? And he continues in the rest of this letter and he talks about that we are under, we are Jew and Gentile with one body that Christ has redeemed us. He's adopted us, not by our own effort, but purely by his gift to us. And he brought us from death to life. This is the truth in Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is the truth that he's referring to. So what does truthing in love look like then? Well, it's everything he's talking about in this letter. Living worthy of the calling to which they are called. It's what he just spoke about, building one another up, equipping the body with in the truth of who Christ is and what he's done and what our identity is. and that We can't be immature any longer so we can grow to be more like Christ, but growing to become like Christ will not happen just because a truth teller speaks a harsh word to someone to rebuke or correct them and then walks away thinking they've done their job. It happens. We, we grow together like Christ and we build one another up. And yes, speaking truth and even hard ones, but it must be lived out in community. 
It's not what happens by just stepping in and dropping a truth bomb on somebody and then walking away thinking you're the hero with a mic drop moment of some kind. The context of this is completely in community as a body rooted in love. So we must be truthing in love. We must be growing in truth and incarnating that truth to one another. We must speak of the truth of who Christ is and demonstrate that life of Christ in love. Both are absolutely necessary. We don't get to pick one. In fact, we don't even get to lean towards one or the other. Both are necessary and required. And they are not at other ends of a scale that we balance out. They are both central to what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't get to say, you know, I'm a speaking person more than a doing person. Paul would say you're a clanging cymbal or an annoying gong or an accordion, maybe. Sorry, it's recording lovers that are in here. But in the famous chapter, chapter 13 of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this to those who are in this place. He says, if I could speak of all the tongues of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, he said, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Truth and love are not two sides of a scale that we balance. They're who Jesus is. We don't get to pick one. We don't get to lean towards one. We are called to be truthing in love. They cannot be separated. It's who Jesus is. And it's who we are called to be. Loving one another, building up the body in gentleness and humility. And loving one another. You know, when I was in South Africa, for those that are new, I, my wife and I have been missionaries for 25 years overseas. And for the last 12 years in South Africa. When I was there, I worked with a lot of different prophetic ministries. And a few years ago, I was working with one person that was growing in the prophetic. As, the problem with being in prophetic ministry is you have to grow. You have to start somewhere, right? And you can be a little arrogant sometimes. And anyways, I was working with someone who was growing in the prophetic, and, and he quoted this verse to me of 4.15. He said, James, I'm prophetic. I'm a truth teller. I just tell it like it is, and if they're offended, that's their problem between them and God, not my issue. And I said, you say you're prophetic? And I said, I don't know if I heard that. Are you? I, said, I wasn't really following what the scripture says about the gentleness and loving part. I said, did, did, you, did you say you're prophetic or pathetic? Because I might have misunderstood you. Because I'm pretty sure you completely missed the entire context of this passage. And what you're doing lacks all love and all truth as a result. They said, no, no, I'm a truth teller. I said, well, I think you're actually more of a narcissist. Um, you seem to be only concerned about what you believe and not so much about caring for other people. I don't think that's what you think it is. Go back, read it again, read the whole chapter, read the whole passage. And then hopefully read the whole book. And come back to me and tell me that that's about how to be a jerk by saying things I think God said. I mean, there are times where we have to speak a word of rebuke. Yes, I've done that many times in the ministry. In fact, I just did it a couple weeks ago with someone where I really felt led to do that. But I'll be honest, I then had to go the next week and repent. Because I realized I said it a little over-amping on the truth part, you could say, using this example. But it was just a little overzealous of what I was saying, and I, I missed the point, and, and I had to go back and repent. Hard words can be part of truthing and love. Absolutely. But it's not the primary way or the only way. And even then, a word of rebuke must always flow out of everything that Paul's talking about in this passage. It must be rooted and grounded in love. Bathing in the love of Christ and building one another up in the body. The way I've often encouraged people about this is if you feel you're supposed to give a word of rebuke or a harsh word to someone, awesome! But don't say a single word. Wait. 
until you can honestly say that your heart towards that person is entirely one of love towards them as a fellow member of the same body of Christ. And that the message you're about to tell them is not coming out of any anger or pain, but out of a spirit-laden burden to be able to speak for, to build up the body and draw them deeper into the life in Christ that he calls us to. And if that's not where you're at, as you have this word you're supposed to give someone, then shut up. Don't say anything. Repent. Go back to the Lord, repent, and ask him to change your heart towards that person before you speak anything to them. Until you're confident that you're actually truthing in love. Not just saying words, but embodying it, incarnating those words in your own life for the sake of the body. Otherwise, keep your mouth shut and don't say a single thing. We are called to be truthing in love, not called to be jerks. The one exception I would make for this, I just want to say, is in situations of abuse. In a situation where someone's been physically or spiritually or emotionally abused, it's not up to them to feel like they love the other person before they issue anything. And I actually want to just address this briefly because, and, and do a little bit of a tangent. Because this past week, uh, one of our home groups uh, messaged me and asked me some questions of following up, a little more clarity on how do we, what do we do with, about unity in situations of abuse in the church. Because the sad truth is there's a lot of abuse going around these days in so many communities. And a lot of you here today are here from a place of woundedness from other communities and in different ways. And so I was asked by one of our groups to clarify, what do we do about unity in, in situations of abuse? And they were, they were talking about how this could be so easily weaponized to, you know, to silence people by saying they're sowing division or something else in this passage. And, and I just want to address that because they said they even looked at you know, Matthew 18, which is that passage about saying, before you ever talk to other one else, make sure you go to the person who offended you or sinned against you and talk to them privately before you go somewhere else. And what I shared with them was that I am completely convinced that any leader who ever tells you that speaking up about spiritual abuse or sin or in any way is breaking unity or sowing division... That person is not representing Christ. They have incredible insecurity. My advice in that situation is don't walk, run. Get away, get far, 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 far away from anyone who would interpret Scripture in that way. Paul's understanding of unity is one that is rooted in gentleness and love and humility and sacrificial love. There's no room for abuse of power in that dynamic. Paul is not talking about maintaining a charade of unity or the appearance of unity. He's not talking about faking it to the world or trying to appear unified as a body or being like a married couple pretending that they're okay in front of other people for the appearance of unity. You know the thing where you have the argument on the way and then everyone kind of smiles and pretends to be okay as they walk into a building. That's, That's not what he's talking about. And secondly, Matthew 18 is one of the most abused passages in Scripture when it comes to leadership in church silencing victims. So many abusers in the church hide behind that passage. Sometimes even elder boards would demand of victims to go privately and speak with their own abuser who has so much more power than them to follow the Matthew 18 principle. Putting victims in even worse places and just exemplifying or exaggerating their abuse. I honestly believe that's a horrific application of Scripture. And we can break it down sometime to look more at who he's actually talking about and how, but no victim who's on the weaker side of any power dynamic should ever be enforced or asked to go speak directly to the person who hurt them if they're uncomfortable with it. As Jesus followers, we must always give voice to the victim, to the one with less power. And here at Northview, we're trying to become more like Christ. But we are far from perfect here. But I want to make something really, really clear. As a pastor in this church, that if something ever occurs where there's spiritual abuse or abuse of any kind in this community, there is no expectation ever of the victim confronting the abuser alone. There's never any expectation of that. 
You can come to another staff member and share. You can come to an elder. Or maybe easiest is go to a friend who then could take it to an elder or a staff member and share on your behalf. But we will never ask victims to then force them to be able to speak to a position of power above them alone in some way that, that silences their voice. And I promise that here at this church, we will always do everything we possibly can to deal with abuse of any kind in a survivor-centric or victim-centric way where we don't place the, 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 the protection of the, of the institution or of leaders above the voice and the people who are being abused and the victims. And I just want to say this because I recognize this is a huge issue in the church today. Every day I follow stuff and hear about another church blowing up of abuse situations and people who are hurting and wounded. And not only that, but if you have any questions about this, please come and talk to me. I recognize going to church can be a really scary thing, especially for many. And I know many of you are in this room right now who've been wounded in the church in the past. And so many have walked away, not from the church, but from Jesus because of abuse that they experienced in churches and wounds that they've received. I've experienced, I've walked in, and been spiritually abused before by spiritual leaders. I never thought I would be a pastor. And my own experience of experiencing spiritual abuse and sexual abuse has me in a place of being able to say that I want this to be a place where people can experience Jesus. And that we would never choose, again, the institution over people. So if you have any questions or experiences about spiritual abuse you need to process, please come talk to me or talk to some of our staff. I, I had two sit-downs with people just this week processing through spiritual abuse of the past. We so long for Northview to be a safe place for people who've been wounded you know, one of the most encouraging things that's ever been said to me in the two years I've been here at Northview is when people have come to me and they said, you know, James, something like this. They say, James, it's been 10 years since I stepped foot in a church. And they say, but this is the first time I've been somewhere where I feel safe, my voice can be heard, and where I don't need to be scared. In fact, four times just this week, I was with people who shared some version of that to me. And that's the greatest joy that we can be a place, our heart is to reach the unreached, but also the de-churched, those who have walked away and fallen away, and to know that we're moving in that direction brings me incredible joy. Yeah, that, that's a little tangent, but it's not really a tangent. I just want to say that to know that we want this to be a safe place because we want to become like Jesus. And we talked about last week, Jesus is the one who calls us to be people who, who are smoldering wicks that they will not snuff out and, and bruised reeds that will not be broken. That's the kind of body we must be because we are called to exemplify Jesus to the world. And if we can't be a safe place for people who have been wounded by Christ, that means that we are stomping on bruised reeds and we are blowing out smoldering wicks. And I really don't think it's that much of a tangent because to me that's what truthing and love looks like. It includes how we address conflict and how we address sin and how we address mistakes that are made. And that we are truthing in such a way that it's not just words, but the truth of the gospel is incarnated and it's demonstrated in our actions. And as Paul says, doing so means that I will be, or we begin to grow becoming more like Christ in every way. That's the goal. That people encounter Jesus when they are around us as a body. That gets us to verse 16. He says this, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So here Paul kind of summarizes everything together, and he goes back to the body analogy, and he says, the whole body must fit together perfectly when each part does its work. When everyone is truthing in love, when everyone is building one another up, everyone is living worthy of the calling to which they are called, and walking in excuse me, gentleness and humility and patience and love. Paul says the whole body will be healthy and the whole body will grow and love and be full of Christ. We will become more like Christ when we do this as a body. And the emphasis here is the body. All the parts of the body are necessary. It cannot be realized in isolation. 
The great reformer John Calvin said this. I love it. He says, The man is mistaken who desires his own separate spiritual growth. For what would it profit a leg or an arm if it grew to an enormous size? And I love that picture. Meaning it's, it's not enough for me to grow on my own. And this is off the problem with, I mean, my master's degree is in spiritual formation. I love spiritual formation growing. But this is a problem with a lot of that movement is it's about me growing more like Christ. Me alone growing like Christ. And that's not what this is saying. For me on my own to enjoy an incredibly deep fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and get incredible life from that is great. But that's not what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter if it's not us doing it together. We must be doing it together, building one another up. It's not enough for me to experience life. We must experience life as a body together. Otherwise, it's incomplete. As Christians, we must be deeply connected to the body of Christ. There is no option in Scripture. It does not exist any understanding of someone to call themselves a follower of Jesus apart from the body of Christ, deeply connected to the body. And it's not just like some rule to follow. It's because without, a, without being connected to a body, we are not the body by ourselves. You can't just have the head Jesus and then a thumb attached to the neck. That's a really weird body, right? We require all aspects of the body together to be the body of Christ. Otherwise, we are not the body. You are not a body. You are a part, as he's describing here. And so Paul says we together grow to be more like Christ. As we grow in maturity, becoming more like him, and we love one another and build one another up. Does anyone want to be part of a community that looks like that? The experiences. Anyone, anyone want to grow and become more and more like that? That's Paul's vision for the church. I mean, that sounds amazing. I would love to be part of a church that experiences that reality. But remember, the church he's writing to hated each other. They were not walking in unity. Paul is calling them towards this reality from a place of brokenness. And the Holy Spirit right now is calling Northview towards this reality more and more. Luckily, we have a better foundation than they had. One of the greatest strengths of Northview is loving one another. So we're not starting from a place of genuinely hating one another, which is wonderful. We have an incredible foundation that's been part of this church. But we are not yet experiencing what it's talking about. There's, there's more growth to be had. Paul says this is the target, that we become more like Jesus together. That we're not just talking the talk, but actually living and loving more like Jesus together. Oftentimes we miss that target. We make it all about trying to sin less or trying to fill up a building or trying to get my blessing. But Paul is calling the church to the long, slow, hard walk that takes a long time of actually becoming like Christ. Now we think and now we desire. So our natural desires is actually the same things that Christ would desire. And it doesn't happen quickly. There's, there's no shortcuts to experience this kind of life. It's not as sexy as maybe as what some of the other churches are doing across town or the Instagram church that has the great following and all the great services. This is not an easy thing that you can just invite people to a building and it happens. This is long, slow, hard work of discipleship and discipline required to experience this. But that's our call. And I, I want to give one more quote from the same guy I quoted last week. And I won't always do this. But this is the second week in Rome doing it. But Dr. Snodgrass and his commentary on this, it's so beautiful. And if, if you like the quote, you can get it from our, our website. All my slides are there under sermon resources. You get the slides, download them all. Everything on the slides is there. But here's the quote I want to give. He says, the metaphor walk suggests something controlled. Now, it's about this passage. Suggests something controlled, enduring, and directed, not something frenetic or aimless. Short-term effort is of no value. We need a lifetime of faithfulness mirroring God's call. None of this suggests we accomplish anything by ourselves, but life with God and by His help is a life of discipline and effort. Two words Christians seem to hate these days. He goes on. 
We today want discipleship without discipline. Let me say that again. We today, we want discipleship without discipline. It does not exist. We seek what we can get by with, but the challenge is to do what we should, to live worthy of the call. Our problem, he says, is we have a $1 million salvation and a five-cent response. We seem unimpressed with God's salvation. We protest that no one can actually live worthy of this calling and express our fears of this just all leading to perfectionism. He says the text is anxious about neither of those concerns. Its concern is only that our lives be shaped by God's salvation, that we become more like Christ. Next one, he says, right theology should lead to right conduct. That's truthing and love. Why is this process so frequently aborted? Is it because theology is threaded through the brain but never gets to the heart? I would say amen. Such belief is useless. Is our knowledge only a source of pride? Our understanding of our call must be sincere and honest, going to the depths of our being. Then by a determined act of our wills and by the help of God's Spirit, our lives must be drawn in line with this call to become more like Christ. We are called to receive and show grace, to be truthing in love. That's a lot of words, but if you've fallen asleep by now, here's the part I want you to get, because this is the kicker right here. He says, application of this passage, the one we just went through, requires nothing less than a reformation of Christianity. We have strayed from the gospel as if we had sold indulgences. Now, maybe you don't all know the history of that, but what he's referring to there was the Reformation of the 1500s. Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Reformed the Church from the Catholic Church that had completely lost the plot. The Catholic Church began selling indulgences, which was to sell forgiveness for sin and salvation. If you wanted to go sleep with someone else's wife, you just go to the church and say, how much is it going to cost me? And they say, oh, it's going to be a thousand bucks. And they literally give you a paper saying you are forgiven from adultery for one time. A thousand bucks to the church, that's an indulgence. If your mom died and didn't know who Jesus was, you say, how much will it cost to get her into heaven? And they would give you a piece of paper saying, she's now in heaven if you give me $10,000, whatever it is. That's an indulgence. It's completely losing the plot, selling salvation of God. And he says, that is what has happened so much to the church today. We need a new reformation because we have so far fallen from the intention of God's design for the church that it's the same as though we were selling indulgences. That's far off, far off. We've lost the plot. We made it all about ourselves and my faith and my salvation when it's about us as a body becoming like Christ together and that the world would see us and be drawn to Him because they see Jesus when they see us. He goes on, our individualism and hierarchies and lack of integrity do not match the calling with which we were called. We have lost our sense of the body of Christ. Be good stewards of His grace and fulfill your role in His body. Live the truth in love. It's not beyond you to be attached to Christ. This is what's required of us as a church. That's the goal. Becoming together like Jesus. And that means that all of us Everyone who calls Northview home and beyond, we must accept the calling to which we are called. We must recognize that we are the clergy, the royal priesthood. It is our role as the body of Christ to build up the body, to teach one another, to demonstrate truth, to be truthing in love. It's our calling to which we are called. Our love for one another, the way in which we actively build one another up and sacrificially love one another should be what defines us as a church. That's our greatest testimony to the world. And how we reach the lost as people encounter a body of Christ that's increasingly looking like Jesus. That we can honestly say to someone who's searching or doesn't know Jesus, hey, you want to know what Jesus is like? Come hang out with me and my friends and you'll meet Jesus. Just by being around us. We can say to a neighbor who doesn't know the Lord, hey, you want to know what Jesus is like? Come have a meal with my family and you'll meet him. 
or, or come to my church and you'll get an idea of what Christ is like by just being around our body. Because when you're around us, you're going to see what Jesus is like because we are seeking to become like him. That's the kind of body we are called to be. That's what Paul is saying. That's the goal. The kind of life we're called to live where people see Jesus in us as a body. They will encounter Jesus by being around us as a church. This is what Paul is calling of the church. So is that the kind of church we want to be? I sure hope so, because it's the one Paul wants us to be. It's the one that God is calling us to grow into becoming more and more of. And we on Nor- at Northfield, we're on the way, we're growing, but we aren't there yet, but we need to be intentional about making it more of our intentional growth, to not just do it haphazardly, to not do it at a snail's pace, but to intentionally say, Jesus, change me and change us, and together actively seek one another and seek to build one another up. So how do we do it as we wrap up? How do we actually truth and love? How do we actually experience this reality? Well, that's really the rest of this letter is all about that. So stick with us, invite a friend. That's what we're talking about the next couple months. But the starting place of this, just first thing, it starts with spending time with Jesus. You cannot become like someone that you don't spend time with. You got to spend time with them. If you're not currently spending time with Jesus, you're saying, I want to become like him, you're just lying to yourself and everyone else. There is no shortcuts to this. We must spend time with someone who want to actually become like them. So it must start there, within prayer and in the Word, and we have accountabilities you can do through our website of reading the Bible in a year, or with Lisa Porter's group and the women's group of doing different studies, but you have to be spending time with Jesus in prayer and the Word. And then we must be truthing in love. We must actually be living this out and working this out in our lives. In humility and gentleness with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to love one another and bear with another in love. So as we close in prayer now, just ask the Lord, what is he challenging you for? To make your private faith public in a way that builds up the body. Maybe it's removing the, or moving the, the hoop, or maybe you don't even have one. You're saying, what on earth am I here for? Why do I even come to this place called church? Why am I wasting time? It's so much easier just to stay home and watch a live stream or just listen to my favorite preacher around the world. Why am I actually engaging in time and pouring and doing this? Why am I doing this? Say, Lord, remind me again what this is, and I want to build in to build up the body of Christ. Let us pray. Jesus, just say thank you. That you've called us, Lord, to be part of your family, to be part of this body, and, and you've not called us in isolation. The number one desire of the world when they do study after study is people are craving after a body of community, Lord. And you've, you literally created us out of community, Father, Son, and Spirit, for community as a broader body. You created us because you wanted to explode the love and the passion that you had for one another in the Trinity into all of creation, that we could be part of this community. And Jesus, so many of us just run into our own directions. We just individualize our faith in so many ways. And because about me and what I want and my needs, but Lord, you called us into a body to become more like you, Jesus. So Jesus, will you please, Lord, will you lay upon our hearts our own steps, Lord, towards pursuing you more? If we're not currently spending time with you, Lord, bring conviction, not shame, but conviction, and may we begin to spend time with you. But Lord, may you also conviction of what it looks like for us to build up the body to not isolate to not pull away but to engage with one another to pursue one another to build up one another thank you jesus for your gift of salvation thank you for your gift of love help us grow in becoming more like you